Hey, what's going on? Welcome to another episode of the If You Mark in Your Bible podcast. My name is Josh, and today we are looking at James chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. And today we have my friend and preacher from the Pauls Valley Church of Christ in Pauls Valley, Oklahoma, Chris Kidwell. Chris, introduce yourself to our audience, please. There, well, I've been at uh, Pauls Valley for, well, since the start of this year, start of 2023. I preached in Bridge Creek for a little over six years before that, Bridge Creek, Oklahoma, Hera, Oklahoma, and Fanger, Tennessee. Before that, I'm married to Kelsey. I've been married for 11 years, have three kids, uh, two boys ages six and five, and a little girl who just turned 19 months old. And so we're, we're busy, uh, but we're blessed for sure and uh, grateful to get to be here and study with you today. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on because... Uh... I think I'm I'm at that stage of life from a kid's perspective that I got one that's about to drive and my youngest is uh, able to feed herself and shower herself and do all that. So I think where you're at as far as ages go is probably the most time consuming portion of raising children uh, as a whole. Uh, each, each, each section has its own uh, or age has its own uh, challenges. Uh, but finding time uh, at net where you're at is probably the uh, the most time consuming. So again, thank you for for being with us and putting in uh, some time to to do this. As I mentioned, we're doing James chapter one nineteen through twenty seven. James, uh, known as the Proverbs of the New Testament, a very practical book uh, written by the half brother of Jesus. And what I really like about James chapter one is he starts off. Uh, talking about in verse 2 after he introduces himself uh, not as the brother of Jesus but as a servant of Jesus and when we remember uh, that his brothers didn't believe on him while he was here on this earth so there's something and I believe it's the resurrection more than likely that changed uh, their view of their brother Uh, and so uh, he writes this epistle from a very practical standpoint starts off with uh, rejoicing in trials. And what I like about chapter one is it just kind of builds on itself. Uh, the the following verse is a continuation or an extension on the verse before it. Uh, in verses 19 uh, through 27 is no different. He mentions in verse 18 the word of truth. And then he's going to, in verses 19 through 27, start to expound on the importance of the word and the importance of how it applies to the Christian. Um, and so uh, that's our context. So picking up in verse 19, know this, my beloved brethren, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. What do you have there, Chris? A couple of things. Uh, first, how he addresses them, my beloved brethren, my beloved brother. See, he's using a term of endearment here. Uh, he, he could have asserted some sort of authority. Um, he could have really railed on them. I mean, he's addressing things that they're struggling with. He could have uh, been condescending to, toward them, but he, he puts himself on sort of a level playing field with them. Um, you know, we're, we're in this together. I love you. I love the unity that we have. And so we're going to talk about what what'll strengthen that and, and what'll strengthen our, our walk and living out that word of truth. 
That's good. I I highlighted this. Uh, I highlighted in my Bible. It's a, a, I would say a verse that is probably well known. Uh, many people have heard this. Even those in the world maybe not have uh, a very deep religious background. It probably heard something uh, as in regards to this verse. Uh, we've definitely heard uh, the adages that would apply to it uh slow to speak or quick to hear slow to speak uh, you hear hear parents tell their children all the time you have two ears and one mouth uh and that's how it was given uh my instructor dan cates actually made pointed out the irony of that and i think that's a important thing to look at is uh the you the utopian scenario in, in this world is uh, that people listen before they speak and they pay more attention or they give more credence to listening than they do speaking. Uh, that's the, the perfect scenario for lack of a better term. But the reality really is you hear somebody say uh, a penny for your thoughts. Uh, but then when they want to give their opinion, they say, I'm going to give you my two cents. And I think that's the reality of it. I think people are more concerned about saying what they want to say than hearing uh, what needs to be heard. And so he's going to address it in, in this uh, particular passage uh, from a preaching standpoint. I think preaching is, and, and when I say when I say preaching, I'm talking about the preacher who is genuinely doing the job that he should do. Uh, I believe it was Alan Webster that said that he believes that for every minute of preaching requires one hour of study. Uh, and I think that's um, a valid way to look at it. And I think that's illustrated here. Listen, we're talking about the word of God. Uh, we're talking about uh, the things God has uh, prescribed for us. And so we should be double interested in hearing what has to be said rather than saying uh, what we have to say. Uh, you have anything uh, concerning uh, anything in particular as verse, uh, far as verse 19 goes. So when he says quick to hear, uh, jumping just ahead a little bit, he's going to talk about being a doer of the word and not just a hearer only in verse 22. And he, what he's doing here is he's establishing, no, you have to be a hearer of the word. It's It's the foundation for everything else you're going to do. You don't get to claim that you're doing the word if you're ignorant of it. Um, certainly with regard to preaching, how could you possibly uh, express to people, to others, what the word is and what it means for them if you don't first understand it yourself? And so anticipating a later discussion on, hey, it's not enough to just be a hearer, he's stressing here, you still have to hear, right? It, it still mm -hmm. has to be uh, a, part of your, a part of your walk, a part of your Christian life. Um, slow to speak and slow to anger sort of jump off the page here, right? You, you mentioned the two ears, one mouth thing with regard to speaking. He notably doesn't say don't speak at all. And he notably doesn't even say don't be angry at all. Um, really, one of the things, particularly with the tongue through this passage, uh, that, that stands out is control. Right. Don't 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 just pop off the first time someone does something that doesn't line up with the word. Don't just pop off the first time someone does something 
that that maybe even hurts you directly. I think about it in context with my own children, especially that six and five year old boy, where if they disobey me, if I just pop off the very first time they do something wrong, one, they're going to be terrified of me. And I absolutely don't want that as a father. But secondly, I might not ever find out why they made the decision that they did. And whether or not it was okay for them to make that decision, understanding why that decision was made is important. Uh, certainly as a father, to try and help root out the issue and help them uh, grow into the person that God wants them to be. That's excellent. I think I like that he, that he says quick to hear. And I think, you know, eager falls in this idea um, behind quick, anxious to hear it. Uh, hearing is our first or top priority. I think this statement, first off, is in regards to humility when we come to God's word and receiving God's word uh, which he talks about and he's going to talk about here in just a minute there has to be a humility where we're going to put aside any premonitions we have coming into it any bias any thoughts that we have preconceived notions whatever in order to receive it and and understand it I like Habakkuk in Habakkuk chapter 1 and 2 when he asked God a question of how long will Israel be allowed to uh, continue in their wickedness? And then when God tells them his plan to use the Babylonians to punish them, he asks them, how can you use a more wicked nation to punish your people? But at the beginning of chapter 2, he says, I'm going to sit back and wait to be reproved by God. And I think that's the attitude in which we have to approach God's word, which is a, a contrast and I put, I underline, be quick to hear, and I just put Second Kings chapter 5, verse 13, where in that context, Naaman was told to go dip seven times in the Jordan, and he gets upset about it. He had this idea of uh, the prophet coming out and waving his hands over him and, and, and all that and healing him. And his servants essentially tell him in Second Kings chapter 5, verse 13, that why don't you just do what he said? He told you to go your way and be healed, so go obey what he told you to do. And we know that he finally put aside his pride, put aside his expectations, did what was commanded of him, and then he was cured of his leprosy. And so I think that thought here is uh, carried throughout. As far as slow to speak, uh, I drew a line from that, and I'm glad you went forward talking about not only uh, – talking about uh, the actions later on, because I drew a line down to verse 26 from slow to speak uh, to the point of bridling your tongue. Uh, and that's a big part of, of bridling your tongue is not, uh, like you said, popping off uh, at the very uh, first opportunity. Uh, I've got a bunch of verses, Proverbs 29 and verse 20, uh, 13 and verse 3, 15 and verse 2, 18 and verse 13, uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, the first uh, two or three verses of that, uh, and then Proverbs 17, 27 and 28, all talk about uh, the one who speaks, and it says, even a fool who keeps his silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. Uh, and that's, you know, Solomon makes the point throughout Proverbs that the one who speaks without rationally thinking about what he's about to say 
uh, makes himself a fool. Uh, Jesus, I'm also reminded from this standpoint, uh, phrases that Jesus made. He often said, let him who has ears, let him hear. Uh, but you see when Jesus talks about the mouth and speaking, especially to his apostles, uh, most oftentimes that he talks to his apostles about the things that they are going to say, it's not in regards to their opinion or what they think. It's always that the Holy Spirit is going to guide them in what they should say. And I think that's telling in the sense that Jesus was, uh, when it came to God's word and spiritual matters, put more emphasis on hearing what God had to say rather than saying uh, what they were supposed to. What else do you have uh, on that? Um, I can't help but notice a modern-day application in the middle of verse 19 with slow to speak. We, we understand this with physical speech, and yet we sometimes fall woefully short when it comes to social media, as if that, that's not covered here uh, by this communication where I, I have seen some of the kindest, warmest, most loving Christians, uh, IRL, if you will, um, display anything other than those attributes online, sometimes by getting into some big, long rant over something that frankly doesn't matter a lot <laughs> online through sharing of memes that uh, degrade those who maybe are outright wrong about things. Um, but the point isn't to just win some sort of argument through a picture and a caption. Um, we're, we're kidding ourselves if we think that this passage doesn't apply to social media. In fact, we're uh, we're doing more and worse than kidding ourselves if we think it doesn't apply to how we handle ourselves online. Oh, excellent point. And it's and it's easy for us to point to things like relationships, things like our reputation, things like our influence, and draw the like you said, draw the the parallel that when we speak without thing, when we are rash to our our words. And even rash to our anger, when I say I'm not rash, well, rash is probably the right word, I guess. But when we haste to anger and we haste to speak rather than uh, listening, uh, then uh, those things are affected negatively. Well, how much more so is our understanding and application of God's will affected? That's more important than any anything that we can do on this earth. If those things are going to be affected by the fact that we're not willing to listen, but we want to speak, uh, the same applies to God's word. And it's a greater sacrifice. We're robbing ourselves of greater riches and a greater benefit uh, when we approach God's word with that uh, same mentality. I like that you pointed out that it says not to be angry. Uh, Ephesians 4.26 uh, and 4.31 uh, I have next to that phrase, and those are the ones that say, be angry, but sin not. Uh, and uh, there has to be an understanding when it comes to anger. Uh, and then you go on to the next, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I think there has to be an understanding that eventually our anger has to subside. We can't, we can be angry. There's nothing wrong with being angry, but there has to come a point and we have to, when we are angry, we have to have this understanding that eventually at some point that anger has to go away. It's not a permanent state. Uh, and, 
this is in, in verse 20, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. If we, if we dwell on our anger or stay in our anger too long, uh, then it's just going to negatively affect us uh, from our walk uh, with with the Lord. And so uh, I appreciate you bringing that up. Anything else on verses 19 and 20? I can't help but think of Genesis chapter 4 when we read verse 20. Um, Cain kills his brother Abel out of anger. That is explicit in the text. Uh, mm-hmm. And God warns him about it. Look, if... There's nothing wrong with being angry. There is very much uh, quite a bit wrong with allowing your anger to be expressed, particularly in a violent way. And I don't mean strictly Mm -hmm. physical violence here, but when we're angry, oftentimes the way that we want to express it is in a way that hurts others, right? I'm angry and I want you to hurt like I do. I'm angry. I'm jealous. It seems in Cain's case in Genesis 4. I'm angry and I don't like the status that you have. And so I want to knock you down a peg as a result. Um, That's clearly not the righteousness of God. But if we allow our anger to express itself, uh, if we allow it to, if we allow it to go unbridled, as we're going to borrow from the tongue later on here, um, the results will not be of righteousness. They won't be godly. Um, Jesus himself was angry at times on this mm-hmm. earth, uh, but the the actions that he took were never strictly out of anger. Uh, again, I come back to my kids often with this, and one of the discussions that Kelsey and I have is when we discipline our children, why are we doing it? Are we disciplining them because we're angry with them, or are we disciplining with them? Are we disciplining them because they need to learn something? Now, both can be true at the same time. But the reason right. that I'm actually doing the disciplining should never be out of anger specifically. Uh, oh, that's a great point. Excellent point. It's uh, good stuff. Good stuff. 21 says, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. I've underlined that phrase, put away. And the thought there in the Greek is is disrobing, uh, taking off uh, filthy clothes, taking off. Uh, and I put next to it, I put literally disrobe, and then I put Hebrews chapter 4, 12 through 13, uh, particularly verse 13. 12 talks about the word of God being quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And then it says that it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And then verse 13 says that no creature is hidden from his sight and all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who must, uh, who we must give an account. And uh, I think when we approach the word of God, there has to be that understanding that, that we're not hiding anything. Even if we come in with bias and, and notions that uh, we're not going to change and that's not hidden uh, from the word or from God. And so it does no good to, to try and hide, uh, hide that. Uh, what's interesting, or at least I found interesting is that word filthiness is from the, the Greek root word from which it comes, uh, is actually the medical term that the Greek, a Greek doctor would use talking about wax in the ears. Uh, and so it's almost as if James is saying, uh, clean out your ears. Uh, the way we would say it today, uh, clean out your ears, 
and remove anything, any obstacle that's going to inhibit you from uh, receiving with meekness the implanted word. Whatever it is, get it out of the way and take in God's word and his commands and his advice and so forth. What do you have on 21? With regard to putting away and receiving, I think it's worth noting here that this is not going to be a one-time thing. Um, he is speaking to a group Absolutely. of people who are uh, already Christians, uh, by and large. He is speaking to a people who, in one sense, have already done this once, right? Um, I think if we're not careful, we reach a point where we think Christian mat maturity is where I don't really have to think about this anymore. That right. being the person that Jesus calls me to be um, is something that I can do out of habit, that I don't really have to think about it anymore. Whereas I think the most mature Christians I've come across in this life, certainly those who I regard as role models, are those who recognize that this is a decision you have to make each and every single day. That if there's something that gets in the way of your service to God, if there's something that gets in the way of your, to borrow directly from the text, your reception of the implanted word, you have to get rid of it. And at, on the other side of that coin, that reception of the implanted word has to take place daily, uh, which means I have mm -hmm. to have this meek attitude daily. But it's not this, uh, James is not saying this from the stance of, uh, from the point of view that says, just do this one time and you're done. Um, he, he's, he's telling us that anytime these things get in our way, we have to take an active part in removing them from our lives. Excellent. Word meekness there has behind it the thought of control. Uh, an individual who is in control of his actions, he's in control of his words, and that control is being exercised in submission to God. So that's that's the thought behind it. And, and keep that in mind, because as we, as we go through the remainder of this passage, uh, control of oneself, and it, we, we touched on it just a little bit in verse 26, bridling the tongue, but controlling oneself is, is vital. Uh, to the Christian walk, uh, and that's and that's receiving the God's word with control uh, is necessary. How many times do people uh, start listening to a sermon and the the preacher says something that that angers them, that that touches them? And I'm, I'm talking about truthful. I mean, the truth you steps on the toes, for lack of a better term. And what do they do? They shut everything off. They don't hear anything else. Uh, they, they get angry. They, they let the emotions drive, uh, what they say and what they do and what they think in that particular moment and completely miss the benefits of whatever else is being said. And, uh, same thing applies here, you know, receive with meekness, receive with control, the implanted word of God, he says, which is able to save your souls. I've underlined that. Just put Romans 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel uh, of Christ for his power of God and his salvation to the Jew first, also to the Greek. Uh, but the Greek there literally means keep your soul saved. And uh, I think you mentioned this when we uh, were, were discussing this before we began recording, uh, that this is Jewish Christians. Uh, these are people who have been saved. And so James is, is uh, teaching them. Uh, and, and to go along with the earth thought of continuing, making it a daily thing, uh, I, I appreciate you bringing that out because our salvation 
is a daily task and you're not saved today and then it just continues on every day we are working uh to keep our salvation to keep our soul saved uh and keep ourselves uh from falling back into the worldliness and paul touches on that throughout uh his epistles jesus taught it in the things he taught i mean it's throughout the new testament uh of of christianity is not a one-time thing or even i would even say uh it's not even a um what's the word it's not an often thing or a uh occasional thing it's it's something that is continuous and and if if we can get to that point where our Christianity is uh, is a part of our character, a part of our nature, something we carry on us even when we're not inside the walls of the church building. Uh, then our walk with God uh, becomes stronger. What else? Do you have anything else on 21? One other thing. There's an implication right at the end of the verse when it says, speaking of the implanted word, which is able to save your souls, that the alternative can't do that. Um, oh, great point. Great and we point. try and replace the word with the lifestyle with the behaviors with the decisions that we want to live out in our lives and james here is very clearly saying that the implanted word is what actually saves us but implicitly saying that other life it does not lead to salvation that other life uh we can imply here leads to destruction um that and, and it takes recognizing i think this is part of that meekness part of that submissive aspect of meekness you talked about it takes recognizing that I can't do it on my own, um, that, that I need some external savior. Uh, a passage I quote fairly often in my preaching, or at least reference fairly often in my preaching, is found in Romans chapter 7, where Paul is struggling with his internal sin. And there's some questions as to the exact nature of what he's struggling with there. Um, but right near the end, I think it's verse 24, he says, Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Because if it's left up to Paul, no one's coming for him, right? Mm -hmm. If it's left up to Paul, he can't save himself. But the very next verse, uh, verse, excuse me, the very next verse offers gratitude towards God for sending Jesus Christ uh, on our behalf. And we come into contact with that sacrifice through the word. Uh, we, we know about that sacrifice and know what that sacrifice demands of us through the word. Those are all things that we don't get to provide on our own because we trip over ourselves even beginning to try. Oh, that's great. In chapter 8 of Romans, uh, running with that thread that you have, uh, the positivity of it, and I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me and nothing is able to separate us from the love of God. And that's an excellent point. Verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. What do you have there? Well, it's quite a dense verse, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I, as I was studying this, I got to the point where I'm like, man, maybe we should have just stopped here at 22. Uh, but I mean, we did bite off a lot. I mean, we could spend an entire episode on just one of these verses. Uh, yeah, great point. I think, I think we have a whole sermon series here in this passage. 100%. Um, doers of the word. And you'll notice he says, not hearers only. That, that word only is reflected in the Greek. It's not just mm -hmm. some sort of interpretation. Um, suggesting here, hearing is important, but it's not enough. 
intellectually acknowledging what God has done for me and in turn what he wants for me from me is not enough. Mm -hmm. uh, doing the word, actually going out and practicing the word is what's required. And, and that last phrase sort of serves as, I don't want to call it the cherry on top, um, but it really puts this in a whole different light. Not hearers only deceiving yourselves. When we think that it is enough to simply know the right things, when we think that it is enough to simply even know the truth without applying it into our day-to-day -day lives, we are lying to ourselves. And after all, that makes sense. If, if we're going to lie to anyone else about the life that we're supposed to live, that no, we're actually okay. We don't need to make changes as the word requires. We have to first lie to ourselves. We have to first convince ourselves that we're doing what's right. Nobody goes out, at least for a long period of time, nobody goes out and lives a life knowing that they're wrong. Nobody can live with that sort of cognitive dissonance long term. Uh, but if you've convinced yourself that the sinful life, whatever form that sin takes, the sinful life that you live is okay, that you don't need to practice the word or that you're practicing something that isn't the word, but you're calling it the word, that's when you can start to distance from God and, and, and try and convince other people, no, you're actually okay. Right. That's great. I, I underline doer of the word and uh, I underline doer and hearer only. And I simply put this acceptance versus rejection. And, and that's the reality of it. The only way to accept God's word is to be a doer of it. If you hear the word only and you don't do it, then you've rejected it. And I think that's that's a great point that you made because there are a lot of people who think that coming to church and participating in the acts and listening to the sermon and then going out uh, and just counting it as another day that I've checked off and, and going about their lives, they may not explicitly say that they've rejected it, but that's what they've done. If you're not going to be a doer of the word, then you've rejected it, whether you want to admit that you've rejected it or not. And, I, and I'm, I'm glad you, you pointed out, and I would, that is the cherry on top. You deceive yourselves if you think, even because you can hear the word and accept it as truth and accept what it says, but then not put it in action, then you've rejected it, even though in your mind you, you feel like you've accepted it. Excellent point. He's going to go on in 23 through 25 for if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, and he's going to expound on that with an illustration. He is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and preserves, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. James, essentially, the illustration is, is simple. It, it, to apply it to us today, it'd be as if I woke up in the morning and I walked into the bathroom and I saw my hair all disheveled and I saw the fact that I needed to shave and I saw the fact I needed to wash my face and I saw a huge stain on my shirt. And then I turned around and just walked off and went about my day without rectifying any of those things. That's the same as hearing the word and then not applying it to our lives. 
and no one, I, I know I, mean, I wouldn't say no one because I know there are some people who probably would walk out like that. But anyone who is concerned about their appearance and presenting themselves in a favorable fashion to those they come in contact with throughout the day, if they see that their hair is messed up, is going to do something about their hair. If they see that they need to shave, they're going to shave. If they don't like what they see in the mirror, they're going to do something to rectify that situation. If they don't like the fact that there's a big chili stain on your shirt, then they're going to change shirts. They're going to rectify what they see in that mirror in order to make it presentable to those in whom they con come in contact with throughout the day. That's the same thing here. Uh, the The word of God puts a mirror before us every, every time we study it, every time we hear it preached, every time we hear it taught. And if we simply take the words and go about our daily lives without any type of change, that's all we're doing. We're looking in the mirror and then doing nothing uh, to, um, to rectify the situation. <clears throat> I circled the word in this passage. Uh, it really stepped out or, or jumped out at me is and preserves. Uh, and I believe it's the King James Version. Uh, that says continue in them. Uh, and you and I, and we're preachers. Uh, so we're preaching on Sunday, but um, you know, just put yourself in the audience. And, and then this applies to the preacher as well. I'm just talking from an audience perspective. You and I preserve the message throughout the week by living it among the community. Uh, one preacher said that, that the greatest compliment to a preacher is to take his sermon and re-preach it Monday through Saturday. And it's it's not just applicable. And like you mentioned earlier, it's a daily occurrence. It, it applies to us throughout the week. Uh, we re-preach the sermon or we fail to re-preach the sermon when we go out into the world and we live, we take what was preached, we take the things we've studied and we apply it to our lives. We read, you know, that's, that's somebody said that maybe we're the only Bible somebody's reading and not in the sense that that's, that's our life. Our life is being observed by them. And, uh, and we either do God's word service or a disservice in the way that we act. What do you have on that? So I, I think, Touching on the preaching aspect of this, there is great danger here for preachers to treat Scripture as a theory to be talked about, which you can do from the pulpit. You can absolutely do it from the pulpit um, without ever either preaching the life-changing application that it's supposed to have or putting that life-changing changing application into practice ourselves. Um, one of the things that was stressed at our time, my time at Freed Hardeman, maybe your time at Memphis as well. I won't speak for your experience. Um, but one of the things that was stressed at our time is, look, if we don't connect this uh, to our lives, if, if this is just academic, you know, for those of us who study this, who had the opportunity to go to school and spend years of our life studying this as blessed of an opportunity as that is, if it's just something we take into academia and we sit up in an ivory tower and we write about it and we occasionally speak about it, but we don't expect change either in ourselves or 
uh, either or in the lives of those we preach to, we've missed the point of this entirely. Right? That that is the mm-hmm. very definition, maybe in a more eloquent way um, than we sometimes think about. That's the very definition of being a hearer only. Now we'll talk about it. We'll spend time discussing things and discussing theories and there's a place for that. I don't want to disparage any of that, but if that's 100%. the extent of it, we've missed the point. We've absolutely missed the point. Um, you know, and we've sort of looked away uh, to borrow, I guess it's not directly from the language here. Um, he goes away in verse 24, we go away and it, it doesn't mean anything to us beyond the academic study of it. I, I tell people every Sunday, um, you know, uh, most preachers get the opportunity to interact with members after the service and talk to them maybe a little bit about the sermon. And one of the things I tell people all the time when I'm done is uh, my toes hurt, right? Because I'm up there preaching things oftentimes that I recognize mm-hmm. as I'm studying and as I'm preaching them, I've got some changes I need to make. Um, and if right. I don't make them, if I get up there and preach the word without ever having any intention of making any sort of changes. That's a definition of hypocrisy at that point. 100%. hundred percent. That's great. Yeah. We, we learned, uh, in fact, our first homiletics class, uh, Bobby Liddell taught mm-hmm. and it, that's the first thing he said, in order to be a good preacher, you have to first be a good man. And he made the point that if you, you could preach for decades and never save a soul, but you, on the day of judgment, enter into your reward, he goes, then you are a successful preacher. And then he, he does the contrast and a hundred percent true. You could be respond. Your preaching could be responsible for leading thousands of people to their reward for eternity. But if you don't enter in with them, you failed. And, and, uh, and you're absolutely right. You have uh, applying it, and giving it that application and, and giving it to the point that uh, an individual is capable of changing their lives and changing their actions because of it is uh, just as important as cracking uh, the deepest, darkest mysteries. I don't want to say dark, but just the, the, the deepest, uh, most difficult to understand concepts of holy writ. Again, there's a place for it, and I'm appreciative of every scholar who has done it and and put time into it. But you're absolutely right. Uh, it means nothing if we are not using it to the betterment of how we live our lives in the world. Well, and I, I think it's important to recognize here that the former, the, the discussion of things in theory, the scholarship aspect, which has its place, it's oftentimes a lot mm-hmm. more fun. Right. Because it's just theory. I, I, I love to sit, sit around and talk about, um, you know, some of the some of the things we discuss that I'm not sure we're going to get an answer to uh, exactly in this life that God's word hasn't fully revealed in a way that we're going to have all the understanding that we're going to like. Um, but that's more fun because it doesn't require any change from me uh, to study those things, whereas if I'm confronted uh, with, say, God's teaching on sexual immorality, and I find myself being sexual, Im- sexually immoral in some way, that's going to step on my toes. And either I'm just going mm-hmm. to ignore it and I'm going to walk out into the street with 
disheveled hair and a chili stain on my shirt, or it's going to require some change that's oftentimes very painful. Right. No, that's a great point. I'm glad you brought that up. The the it's also the the most challenge the the intellectual the scholarly stuff the theorizing about what what is meant here there uh, is fun. It's also more challenging, and I think that's a testament to God's word because when it comes to the doctrinal facets of Christianity, the Bible is simple. It's it's very straightforward. It's very plain. Uh, God is not the author of confusion. And so what it requires for you and me to change our lives in order to obtain salvation and attain an eternal reward, God hasn't hidden that or cloaked that in mystery. And sometimes that's why Peter, well, we already know that. Well, what what Peter say? Uh, I believe it's either First Peter one or Second Peter one. I'm, I think it's Second Peter one, where he says, "I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna cease putting you in remembrance of these things." Why? Because I'm not always gonna be here, and when I'm gone, I want it to be. Even if we have heard the the truths of a sermon, say it's the most basic thing, it still in in ingrains that truth further and further into our minds. And we've been anytime the truth is preached, whether we've heard it or not, we still benefit from it because we either learn something new or we further drive a biblical truth into our character uh, if we're doing it honestly. Uh, I think it was Franklin Camp. It might be as someone else. Uh, they say that he made it a point. Uh, he, even if it was a, a teenager given a five minute devotional on Wednesday night, he made it a point to pull out his notepad and take a note and, and pull something from that sermon or that devotional thought. Even, I mean, this is a man who, who probably knew more about the Bible than I'll ever know. Yet, if a 15 year old is getting up there preaching the truth, he's going to take something from it. And I think that's uh, an excellent point. You have anything else to do any 25? Well, just quickly sort of tailing off what we've been talking about here, I think the it, I think it's fair to say the repetitive aspect of what you're talking about here, where we hear where we have that same truth ingrained in us, there's a recognition that while the truth doesn't change, we do. Um, that I may hear something at a different stage in my life uh, than I was at previously. E even putting aside the fact that I'm transformed, which is by far the most important change, Right, uh, that that I was once not a Christian and now I am. I was once not interested in being faithful and now I am. Right, I, I've talked already, I think, twice about using my children as examples. Six and a half years ago, that wasn't on the table. Uh, that's not something mm -hmm. I cared about very much. Um, six and a half years before that, I wasn't married. I think I knew Kelsey at that point. We we dated for a couple of years before we got married, um, but. You know, it, it, it's something where we change. And as we continue to study the word, we hit different things in our life that, that sort of open our eyes. Oh, oh, this means this in that context, right? I, I read, mm -hmm. for example, the end of Ephesians 5, that discussion between Christ and the church in the context of marriage. That probably means more to me now than it did 12 years ago. Um, 100%. And so there's a recognition that even though the word doesn't change and certainly we shouldn't try to make it change we do and so how it interacts in context 
changes a little bit because me being the context uh, where it's implanted changes. Doesn't change the truth of it. Doesn't change what it requires of me, but it does change my understanding uh, of it in my own context. That's and I want to be delicate with that. I don't want to suggest that somehow um, you know I I have license to follow or not follow commands because I'm at a different stage of my life. Just that there's some maturity that goes along with that as as we grow. That that I it's going to hit me in different ways than it used to. Hmm. I call it a better understanding. You oh. And and like you said, uh, before I had children, you know, I knew what the Bible said concerning children and raising children. Uh, but now that I can understand those passages from not only a intellectual standpoint, but from an experience standpoint, uh, I have a deeper understanding of those passages now uh, than I did uh, 14, 15 years ago before uh, I had a child. And same thing with marriage. Uh, and that's. That's the beautiful thing about the Bible. Uh, Kyle Butt said it, uh, and I don't know if I've mentioned it on this podcast before, but Kyle Butt said that a 12-year-old could pick up God's word and understand the fundamental truths of it. But that same 12-year-old could study that Bible every day for the remainder of his life and still not pull from it all that there is. And that's... Uh, a testament to the fact that it wasn't simply written by man, but it's it's the words from the mind of an eternal God uh, that it should humble us uh, that we have uh, this book that has uh, made himself known to us, made his expectations of us known to us, uh, but also made and known unto us the promises for those who keep his his commands. Uh, so it's it's a blessing that it oftentimes, at least by the world standards, is taken for granted. And I uh, appreciate you bringing that up. 26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So... He talks about being doers of the word and hear and not hearers only in verse 22 and 23 through 25. He deals with the facet of being a hearer only. And now he's shifted here in verse 26 and 27 to expound on the thought of being a doer of the word. Uh, and it gives really three main and I think this, I think you could incorporate any type of being a doer of the word with these things, bridling your, with these three things, not things, but three things, uh, bridles his tongue, uh, visits the orphans and the widows in their affliction or helps others and then keeps oneself unstained from the world. Uh, if you want to talk about being a doer of the word, uh, and use those in, in their most general uh, facet of of their thought uh, that's Christianity, and these these three things are essentially going to lay the thread that's going to run throughout the remainder of this epistle. Uh, and so, what do you have there on twenty six and twenty seven? Um, I notice again for the second time in this passage the idea of self deception deceives his mm -hmm. heart. You have to lie to yourself to think that you are okay to be able to to think that you're religious um, by simply 
knowing what the word says and being unable to restrain your tongue. And James here, he's not subtle. He's saying, if you're lying to yourself about this, you need to know your religion is worthless. I, I, I want to suggest, I don't think he's telling them something they don't already know. I think what he's doing here is offering a wake-up call. Right? Mm-hmm. I, I think what he's doing here is he's saying, some of you are skating by, or at least in your own eyes, you're sort of skating by, thinking that simply knowing enough, knowing the right things, which, again, it's important. Hearing is important. We've said that several times. Um, but that hearing is enough and you're considered religious because you bother to go to services on Sunday morning, like you talked about earlier, hear the sermon and, and to be present. And even by the way, um, you know, stepping on my own toes a little bit here, those of us who preach, we think we're more religious sometimes if we think we go to lectureships and conferences and, uh, and retreats and seminars and, and listen, I love all of that stuff. Uh, I go to as much of that as I can. Um, I'll be at a retreat here in about three weeks where I'm not speaking on it. I'm just there to listen. I'm just there to hear. And as important as I think that is, it doesn't make me more or less religious. Um, what is clear is if I think that makes me more religious, if I think I'm uh, better off because and only because I go to that sort of stuff, actually my religion is worthless and it makes sense because it doesn't produce anything. If that's mm-hmm. the extent of it, it doesn't actually bear fruit. Um, you know, it's, I, I, I become something of a spiritual weed at that point where I, I, I suck up everything that's useful without ever producing anything that's beneficial to others. That's excellent. That word, uh, worthless. And I'm glad you touched on that is used in, uh, Romans chapter one and verse 21 when it, and it talks about the futile thinking, uh, of the Gentiles, their philosophies and their. Uh, what they deem to be important and what they deem to be religious, uh, Paul talk, calls it futile. James uses the word as translated as worthless here. He, Paul's saying the same thing. And in verse 22, the very next verse, he says, making themselves to be wise, they became fools. Uh, and that goes along uh, with what James is saying, deceiving yourself. Uh, and And when you deceive yourself, you're the only one who's impacted negatively. It's it's not now there now there's some maybe some who, uh, you know maybe follow after you and they're led astray the blind leading the blind type of concept. But the reality is is that if if we know what is right and we fail to do it, we're only hurting ourselves. Um, and and that's an excellent point. But, um, it also goes back to that thought of meekness, having control. Uh, all three of these things require discipline. You know, bridling your tongue requires discipline. Visiting the orphans and the widows in their affliction, that requires discipline. You have to make the conscientious choice and then to keep yourself unstained from the world. Uh, that's a, dis- uh, a distinct choice that we have to make. None of these things here are going to happen by accident. And... Uh, that's that thought of meekness, having control over yourself, being disciplined over yourself, and then using it in submission to God. Um, I've underlined, uh, that just that phrase, uh, religion that is pure and undefiled before God. Uh, and I just put, uh, the, the phrase, it's a lifestyle. Uh, pure and undefiled religion before God is a way to live. It's not 
uh, hearing a message or things that we say, but it's it's how we act. Um, I don't think orphans here uh, is obviously one whose uh, father has gone. Uh, but there's also a facet of this where this is the one who has no spiritual guidance. And so I think there's a facet of this visiting the orphans and widows and their affliction. Uh, I think there's a facet of this that would point to evangelism. Uh, sometimes you do, you talk about, I remember Paul, uh, referred to himself as, uh, or, or referred to Timothy as his son or child in the faith. And, and there's that thought there. And I think that's involved in this word orphan. Uh, sometimes, uh, this, this portion of the Christian walk is we're going to be the father figure, for lack of a better term, spiritually speaking, to somebody who doesn't have that. Uh, and it, it has nothing to do with age, has nothing to do with uh, relationships in the sense of familiar, familial or uh, friendships or whatever it is. Uh, I think the fa some one facet of this is evangelism providing spiritual guidance to somebody taking the gospel of someone uh but i don't also just want to point this out that i don't think that the visitation facet of this is limited only to orphans and widows i think what james is doing here is he's using an extreme to cover everything else uh, and the reason i say that is um an orphan and a widow, especially in the first century, would have been unable to reciprocate any type of aid. Go to Second Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. At the end of that passage, he tells the church at Corinth to give out of their abundance. And he makes the point that the reason to help the church, uh, the needy in Judea, and he makes the point that while they are needy now, and you've been blessed, give out of your abundance and help them because there may come a time where you're the one that's needy, they're the one in an abundant, and the expectation will be that they help you at that time. You and I are in that same situation. Uh, if for some reason you needed to borrow money and I was at a point in my life where I could lend out money, uh, I could do so. But there's also an understanding, if that were to happen today, that there's possibly tomorrow, I would be the one who was in need of money. You would be the one who was in a state of abundance, and you could help me out. But when you look at an orphan and a widow, they're never in a state of abundance. Yeah. They're never in a position to help somebody. They're perennially, perennially in a state of need. And so I wrote, uh, help those who cannot reciprocate after I underlined that phrase. And I put Luke 14, 12 through 14, where Jesus basically says, help those who cannot reciprocate the help that you provided to them and God will repay for them on the day of judgment. And I think that's the thought that he's making here. What do you have on these last two verses? So a couple of things. So the first is, uh, as far as the evangelistic aspect of this, um, so my wife has been teaching for, uh, for I think this is year ten for her, uh, year ten for her being an elementary school teacher. And Congratulations! Yeah, thanks. It's uh, I'm I'm quite proud of her. Uh, yeah. But I, I one I, of the, 
handling that- other people's kids for 10 years is <laughs> an accomplishment in and of itself. Well, so, and especially with the school systems these days and how parents approach teachers, uh, 100% congratulations to Kelsey. Thanks. Um, one of the things though, that I've had the, um, I won't call it pleasure of discovering is by way of contrast, how privileged I was growing up with good godly examples in my life, because I see in Kelsey's classroom, I'm, I'm aware of some stories of kids that, I mean, you got homeless kids, you've got broken homes, you've got people who don't mm-hmm. have, uh, in many cases, a father to look up to any sort of relevant spiritual guidance to where Kelsey in, in the environment that she's in, um, as restrictive as it can be in some aspects, um, it might be the most prominent spiritual guidance that some of these people have had. Uh, and the thing that just smacks me right in the face is if we're not reaching out to them, who is? Because someone is going to fill in that void, right? Someone is going to reach out to them. They might not offer the spiritual guidance that we would offer. Uh, they might not lead them closer to God, but they're going to offer some sort of guidance. They're going to offer something that's appealing. Um, and we should be defined uh, religiously to borrow directly from the verse itself here in verse 27, we should be defined by our willingness to reach out to those who, like you said, have, have nothing to offer in return. Um, if mm-hmm. for no other reason than the fact that we might be the only people, um, people of faith, people who are try are, are looking out for the best interest, we might be the only people they ever come across. And if we're not reaching out to them, if we're not meeting their needs, helping them in their distress, Someone else is going to come in and we run the risk of allowing that to be someone who wants to take advantage of them, wants to hurt them, but at the very least would not point them toward God. The other thing that I have on this, and it's very closely connected, I cannot help but think of Isaiah chapter one when I read these last couple of verses. Um, In Isaiah, in the beginning of the book, you've got this description of um, the people are, are, they're worshiping, they're, they're, they're practicing worship, they're practicing sacrifice, and and, and God wants nothing to do with it because of the state of their lives outside of that worship context. And we get all the way to, down to verses 16 and 17. In verse 16 of Isaiah chapter 1, the text here says, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. And in the next verse, he details what that washing implies. He details the changes that they need to make. And it's not your sacrifices need to be better. You need to spend more time in the word. You need to study harder, as important as those things might be in certain contexts. He says, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. And what he's saying here is you have been ignoring people who desperately need you in your life. You have been ignoring their situation. You have been ignoring the struggles that they have. Sometimes if we're not careful, we'll take verse 17 way out in the left field and apply it to a system of governance. I don't think that's a proper application uh, in in our modern day. Um, certainly right. the Old Testament was civic law in a way that the New Testament is not. However, there's still the principle behind it. Don't overlook those who can't fend for themselves. That that should be what defines God's people. And, it, and, and it's echoed over here in James chapter 1. Look, you really want to be religious? You really want to have this relationship with God, this lifestyle that shows godliness? Help take care of those who can't take care of themselves. 
Excellent. Yeah, God has always been the God of the needy and the poor and the less fortunate. Uh, that's an excellent, excellent point. You have anything else? Um, if not, that's a great way to end it. But go ahead. I was going to say, the only other thing is that very last bit, uh, keep oneself unstained from the world. I'm never going to not be able to think of that as a chili stain after our uh, our time together this <laughs> afternoon. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it would be embarrassing to go out trying to do the right thing while blatantly ignoring sin in our own lives. Um, you 100%. know, we're going to struggle with sin and we need to be honest with people about the fact that, hey, we're not perfect, right? We're not doing this when we help out widows and orphans, we're not doing it from a position of condescension. We're not, we should never have the attitude that we're better than those people. And that's why we're in a different situation. That could be further from the truth. Um, right. But we do need to be sure that when we go out and do these things, we don't in the process have egg on our face, chili on our shirts. Uh, we need to be sure that we have our own life intact in as much as we also want to go out and help others as well. Excellent. Excellent point, man. That's a great way to end it. Uh, Chris, man, thank you for coming on. Uh, thank you for the time you put into this. Uh, thoroughly thank enjoyed you. this. The, the audience, thank you for listening uh, and, and being with us on this episode. Uh, like, share, subscribe. Uh, pass this on to your friends. Uh, let them know about it. Uh, and if there's anything uh, you want to add or if there's any question you might have, feel free to shoot an email or reach out to us via the social media platforms we'd be happy to answer uh, and look at that uh, as always thanks for listening and we are out